Welcome to the Summit County HealthCast, a podcast to improve the health and wellness of residents in Summit County, Utah. Join us as we interview local experts, professionals, and more to provide you with the best health and wellness tips Summit County has to offer. Let's get started. and welcome back to another episode of the Summit County HealthCast and I am here today with the three tenors of climate change. How's it going today gentlemen? Great, good. So we'll hear from each one of you starting with Mr. Duncan, Chip Duncan over here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with this group and we'll go from there and everyone can have a turn. Well, I'm a longtime documentary filmmaker based in the Midwest and have been documenting glaciers throughout North America since 1991, especially in the St. Elias Range and the Juneau Icefield, and more recently, along with my two cohorts here, I should say the fellow tenors, have also been a member of the Juneau Icefield Research Programs Board, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more as the talk continues here. And uh, I'm Hernando Garzon. I'm a physician, emergency medicine physician by training and specialty, but I've also done a lot of uh, disaster response and disaster relief work for uh, over 20 years, and many of those disasters have been natural weather events, fa uh, famine, drought, uh, hurricanes, flooding, so that's my connection to the climate change aspect is the disaster relief work I've done. My name is Ben Santer. I'm a climate scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California, and my job is to study the nature and causes of climate change and try and separate human effects on climate from purely natural fluctuations of climate. I think we can see where the climate change uh, intersection is, but how did this trio form and what was the purpose behind that? Was it kind of like a band getting started or how did that work out? <laughs> uh, that may have been where the name came from, but the, uh, the Juneau Field Research Program, which happens every summer, uh, is a phenomenal program and all three of us had some affiliation with the program. And uh, Hernando initially as an emergency uh, doctor uh, doing wilderness medicine. I had been up there documenting the glacier work that they were doing for a film and Ben had been asked to lecture there several times as a climatologist. And, and what we found was that our, our lectures for the students were often overlapping and intersecting. And so I originally I thought, well, let's get Ben into Wisconsin where I live to talk. And he said, well, you're going to talk too, right? And I, I was like, well, we don't need to hear from me, let's listen to you. But there was this kind of synergistic plan of sorts, kind of off the cuff really, um, to say, well, I'll provide kind of the experiential <laughs> overview of of glaciers and ice and, and some of the different ecosystems where I've worked as a filmmaker. And then Ben added the climatology, global warming component, and then we said, well, wait a minute, let's talk about marginalized populations around the world that are dramatically impacted by climate change and global warming and then that's where Hernando came in so so at that point we said well let's start you know talking and, and you know visiting audiences around the country and we didn't have a name I'm not sure we I'm still not sure we have a name but jokingly one of us came up with the three tenors of climate change so at least temporarily until there's an injunction we'll uh, we'll just go with that so getting into the actual details of climate change, all three of you obviously experts in that area. 
We hear a lot about this on the news, and I think one of the go-tos is talking about uh, the melting ice caps, but since you've been observing this and have that one-on-one -on -one experience, I'd like each of you to tell me what the most obvious and serious evidence of global warming is, in your opinion, that you see and that you've observed. My experience has been very personal in doing disaster relief. So uh, a subset of the, probably a third of what I've done, I'd say, has some some bearing on climate, and climate has been the cause of it. So I, I did work in Ethiopia and Somalia and eastern Kenya on a, a drought, a very drought-stricken and famine area. I've also um, responded to several hurricanes and floods in, in Maria, the most recently in Puerto Rico. So it's all been around natural disaster, essentially. I would say that uh, the evidence is everywhere. You know, we'll get into this perhaps a little bit later, but uh, 23 years ago I was involved with a report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, or IPCC, and they came to the finding that uh, humans are affecting global climate. And back then, in 1995, that was kind of controversial. And most of the evidence back then was focused on looking at changes in the surface temperature uh, of the oceans and the land. And one of the lines of criticism back then, uh, a justifiable criticism, was if there really is a human-caused climate change signal lurking in observations, you should see it in the depths of the ocean, in ice and snow, in the amount of moisture in the atmosphere, in atmospheric circulation, in many, many different aspects of climate change, even, as Hernando mentioned, in the statistics of extreme events, droughts and flooding should see changes in the frequency, intensity, duration of these things. Go and look for those things, climate scientists. Don't just look at surface temperature. So that's what's happened since 1995. And the scientific community has interrogated all of these different independently monitored aspects of the climate system. And the bottom line, the red thread running through all this work is the changes we see in snow and ice and atmospheric circulation and ocean circulation and sea level and temperature. Uh, we can't explain those things by natural causation alone. Uh, you need a strong human effect on climate in order to best explain what we've actually observed and measured and monitored. Well, and in, in my case, uh, where, where Ben has the great scientific basis for a lot of this discussion and, and can point to very specific data and computer modeling, my work has been more photo documentation and to some extent listening to the, to the uh, elders and oral histories in different parts of the world. So you can look at, a, at an area like Sub-Saharan Africa and especially the southern Ethiopia region and simply talk to elders in those communities and start to understand very quickly that things like the drought cycle have changed dramatically where maybe it was 25 years, now it's down to three or four years. So things like deforestation that have happened um, have dramatically changed those environments and, and the trees are not coming back. Or more specific to what we'll talk about here in, in the Salt Lake City, Park City area, you can look at the, the glaciers of North America with visual documentation going back 120, 130 years. There's a, a USGS scientist named uh, Bruce Molnia who for more than a decade has been taking photographs from the 1880s, 1890s, going back to the same locations and doing the same photo documentation that was done at that time. And the differences are dramatic. And then in my own 
case now with roughly close to 30 years of documentation in the same locations going back I've seen dramatic changes in ice that are not typical of the kind of melt that we would have seen over the last 10,000 years they're they're melting dramatically so uh, the glacier that most people in uh, North America are most familiar with is the Mendenhall Glacier in Juneau. This is the most visited glacier and it's almost at the point where you can no longer see the glacier from the visitor center. I was there last year. I can vouch <coughs> for that. Yeah, I mean it's it's in just the last decade alone I've been documenting it annually and it's changing dramatically but um, I've also journeyed down the Tachantini and Alsec river systems in the St. Elias range now close to 15 times and there's one particular glacier there that we've seen uh, now move from the water's edge almost two miles back, drop in elevation more than 300 feet. It's no longer natural for the glaciers to lose mass at the rate that they're losing it. So the camera doesn't lie. It's just one barometer, but that's more or less what I've seen. I think this is a good transition to our next question. Let's talk about maybe some other effects that aren't as visible to the public or aren't as well documented but are just as serious that you've observed or that you can point to to talk about climate change. One thing that we've looked at uh, in the last couple of months has been the seasons themselves, the march of the seasonal cycle. And it's been kind of fascinating to see that if you look at these beautiful satellite measurements of the temperature of Earth's atmosphere. We've got about 40 years of those satellite measurements. Global scale changes in the temperature of Earth's uh, atmosphere. You can look at what's been happening in every month, and every month has been warming <laughs> globally uh, over those 40 years. But in our latitudes, in mid-latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere, uh, we've seen more warming in summertime than in wintertime. And that appears to be partly driven by the drying out of the soil. So again, burn fossil fuels, ramp up uh, levels of heat trapping greenhouse gases in the, in the atmosphere. We start warming the planet. And in summertime, then we start drying out the, the soils as well. And that means that you have less moisture to cool things down through evaporation than you had with a moisture soil. So we see that signal both in the soil moisture data, in the temperature data, and that's bad news, say, in California, where I live, because it means that we're getting more warming in the fire season. And this year, for example, in California has been uh, catastrophic. Uh, it's been so costly in terms of human lives, in terms of property, uh, in terms of um, you know, folks in government having to spend significant resources dealing with this problem. And if we're right, then that's a sort of window into our future. We can expect this enhanced summertime warming to continue uh, in the future. And, and that's not good news for your fire season here or for our fire season in California. I've seen that um, uh, certain things that aren't covered as much um, but are due to climate change are around the health effects and the forced migration effects on populations. Uh, the World Health Organization has predicted tens of thousands of additional deaths a year over the next 20 years and beyond if we don't stem the, the, the climate change that's happening. 
Um, and that's from different causes. That's from everything from famine to increased infections like malaria with changing climates in certain communities. And the World Bank actually this year predicted that 140 million people will have forced migration from, from their homelands because of flooding, of drought, um, areas that they can't farm anymore and they have to move to look for places where they can sustain themselves. Uh, if you look at uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, the population is 70% of what, what it was today, what it was 10 years ago before Hurricane Katrina. And in Maria, an island of 3 million people, 300,000 came to the mainland and are, are not expected to return. So even in the U.S. we see that forced migration from climate change. So bringing things a little closer to home now and talking about, we talked about fires and we talked about some other things like uh, malaria and other mosquito viruses. What are some things that you would specifically tell to residents of Utah or even here in Summit County about how climate change is affecting them? I think this is really timely given the drought summer we've had and the fires we've had here, but how can we bring this home for listeners in the local area? One of the things that uh, we understand reasonably well is related to changes in snowpack. So again, as we burn fossil fuels and increase atmospheric concentrations of heat-trapping greenhouse gases, we're warming the oceans, the land surface, the lower atmosphere, and we can observe uh, throughout mountainous regions of the western U.S. and Canada decreases in, in snowpack. Now there's some variability from year to year, uh, but that's what we're looking at, and that's what we also see in model simulations of uh, <clears throat> the response of the climate system to increases in greenhouse gases. And that's deeply concerning because many people rely on that snowpack in California for water for agriculture in the Central Valley, in, in the Andes for drinking water for millions of people. So these, these kind of changes um, are already having local and regional impacts uh, that uh, are likely to be exacerbated in the future. You see, uh, as, a, as a person from the media, I can tell you that the networks tend to focus on big climactic events that you know are visual and impact mass numbers of people, so Superstorm Sandy or the recent hurricane that uh, really decimated North and South Carolina, those are, those are the obvious ones. But in a place like the Intermountain West, there, there are some things that are really unique to this area that you may not see in the Appalachians or in the Pacific Northwest. And one of them, as an example, is the way insect populations have changed dramatically with temperature changes. And so you're, you're starting to see massive shifts in, in the forestation of these areas, in the way that groundwater is impacting the aspen forests or the pine forests are dying from, you know, beetles that are surviving, uh, you know, without having the temperatures be as cold as they traditionally were. So it is very, it can be very regional and, and we tend to be a pretty myopic species. So you know, there are some people that are already learning how to benefit from climate change and, and saying, well, maybe, you know, in Wisconsin, for example, where I live, there's parts of southwestern Wisconsin where people are now building and, and planning on almond farms for the future or building uh, vineyards because the climate is changing in a way that's favorable to you know, owning a vineyard. So, but it's very regional and a lot of people can't seem to see beyond where they live to look at the global impact of this particular problem. 
In this area, I think we're, all, we're already seeing in the western U.S. the increase in, in fire risk, right? The wildland fire in the fire season is longer than it was before. We've had some terrible fires in the last couple of years in the west. And the other thing is the ski industry, of course. I think there's a very good study in from a Colorado from 2017 looking at, depending on the models for for warming temperatures, the number of days, the impact on the ski industry, and basically the entire ski industry in the U.S. is going to be affected and to the tune of billions of dollars. They, they have a, estimates of how many resorts will actually have snow, skiable snow by Christmas, and that number goes from 70% to about 30% in 20 years. So it's a very big economic impact in this area. And one thing I'd, I'll add, you know, it, uh, one of the things that will come from the talk that we're giving, and, and it's something that we discuss everywhere we go, is that there are some really great people out there doing great work on this issue. And, and one of the areas that we like to highlight is the Juneau Ice Field Research Program. Um, it's, they have climate records that go back now 73 years, and it's a student uh, initiative that has been measuring and, and studying the mass balance of glaciers in the Juneau Ice Field for literally that entire time. And so we're starting to see real momentum taking place at the Arctic Institute and JERP as we call it and, and other programs around the world where people are are literally investing time and energy into this issue and, and coming up with some really viable research and also long-term solutions. Speaking about long-term solutions, kind of a bonus question now. People <laughs> hear about climate change and they think I'm one person and this is a global issue that we're facing. So what are some things that individually people can do to help out with the process that will make an impact? I would say education, education, education. It's difficult to see how we're going to shift the needle on the issue of responding to human-caused climate change without uh, an informed, scientifically savvy electorate. Uh, folks need to understand the reality and seriousness of human-caused climate change and need to understand that there are solutions. Uh, there are things we can do in terms of uh, how we use energy, how much energy we, we use, what diets we have. All of, all of this stuff, if you scale it up from individual actions to local, to regional, to country, to global actions, can indeed take a huge bite out of this problem. But you have to agree on the basic facts of the matter. There has to be responsible discussion about uh, the, the problem. You can't dismiss this stuff as a hoax or as a conspiracy, as unfortunately members of the current administration are doing. So that's why I am so grateful for the opportunities together with Chip and Hernando to have this uh, frank, responsible discussion with a variety of different audiences about what we're measuring, what we're monitoring, what likely outcomes are for the climate system if we do nothing to address the problem, about the human dimensions of climate change that Hernando has to deal with, about the stories, the visual evidence that, that Chip has to um, <clears throat> bring back or has brought back from these remote areas of the world. Let's have a discussion about that. Hopefully we can have that tomorrow night. I, I, I would add to that that there, there's always debate within the environmental community about individual action versus policy action. And there's never a downside to an individual taking action on their own to mitigate their, their use of re natural resources and carbon in particular. And I'm a 
personally, I know I'm a big offender because I fly a lot. But I, I think there, when you start looking at solutions, the, the biggest and most important one is to vote. And then to Hernando and I have done a lot of disaster relief together in different parts of the world. And, and one of the things I've noticed about the American population in general is it tends to be a very generous group of people. People will open their wallet when there's a natural disaster. It could be the earthquake in Haiti. It could be uh, drought in, in East Africa. Um, we're good at that. But people, for some reason, don't see this issue the same way. And yet this change in climate and global warming in a general sense is having a much greater impact on the poorest people on earth than it is on the wealthy. And so it, to me, it is like any other humanitarian crisis. So if people get their head out of the sand, vote and, and really pay attention to what this issue is like globally, not just in their backyard. No, I would say the same things. I think both are valuable, the individual actions, reducing your own carbon footprint and, and then activism, whether it's volunteering for an organization that has an environmental focus and certainly voting your, your, your beliefs and making sure that we put policymakers in place who will, who will do this at a, at a higher level. Okay, so just before we close tonight, a little preview of what people can expect when they come tomorrow evening to the event. Well, I, I can start off by saying uh, this is Chip talking and I'll begin with a visual presentation, a handful of film clips and photos that hopefully give people kind of an experiential overview of ice and glaciers and what those landscapes are like. So we have a sense of, of what, what we're looking at when we say a, a glacier is melting. A lot of people don't necessarily even know what a glacier is or what it's like to walk on one or drink the water. So my role is to begin with that. I then pass the baton to Ben, which I'll do right now. So I take the baton and I run with it and I get into what I mentioned a little earlier. What happened to me personally 23 years ago when I was asked to serve as lead author of one chapter of this report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and we came up with this infamous finding the balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on global climate and a lot of bad stuff happened after that finding came out. There were powerful people who didn't like that uh, finding and did their darndest to try and take down the finding and the entire report and the scientists associated with it. So I've had the opportunity to take a trip down memory lane and reflect on what the heck did I actually learn from that experience? Uh, and that's what I'm gonna talk about tomorrow. I'm gonna to talk about six lessons learned from the discernible human influence finding. Uh, and then I'll take the baton from there and I'll pull in the last leg and I'll talk about, um, at a personal level really, the experience I've had in working some of these disasters. So I show a lot of images of those disaster settings and the people it impacts and talk about each of those uh, different disasters in a bit and, and sort of sort of put a, a human face on the, on the impact of climate change. Awesome. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today, and we're all looking forward to your presentation tomorrow. Again, that's the three tenors of climate change, which will be Thursday, October 4th at 7 p.m. at the Salt Palace Convention Center. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Summit County HealthCast. For news, program information, and more, visit us at summitcountyhealth.org. Stay healthy, Summit County.